I am assigned to speak on the subject of eternal marriage and am prayerful that my preparation and spirit will not be inadequate to that very holy subject. In a beautiful room in the temple, I talked one day with a little boy who was dressed in white, ready to join his parents and brothers and sisters in a sacred ceremony. I said to him, Why is your family here in the temple? He said, To be sealed. I said, What does being sealed mean? He said, We're going to be a forever family. Oh, I said, You're going to be a family forever. You must have a good family, a happy family, to want to be with them forever. Do you have a happy family? Yes, sir, he said. This fine lad had already begun to understand two of the most important principles anyone could know, that our Heavenly Father has provided that marriage and family ties may be established permanently to endure forever and that a marriage that we can joyfully look forward to eternally must be a good marriage, a marriage that is the heart of a happy home and family. I also wish to testify that the principles and covenants of the gospel, and particularly those of the temple, are the best possible basis on which to build a strong union, and that such a marriage never just happens. It is brought about not simply by ceremony or circumstance or chance, but by two mature, loving adults who are able and willing to learn the principles upon which a vital and durable marriage may be fashioned, and who day by day, year by year, work on that process. Most of us gathered tonight are married. Many are nearing the time for that vital undertaking, and you younger men who are old enough to attend this meeting are old enough also to begin to think seriously with us of some vitally important principles in your future. Let me speak then of a temple marriage as the basis for a happy eternal union fashioned on the solid foundation of gospel covenants by two honest adults who are learning and growing together, and with a priesthood of God as the authority through which the covenants are administered. The priesthood not as a commission of superiority or domination, but of service, of loving leadership and faithful example in the home through the Spirit of the Lord. Honorable marriage is approved of the Lord. Indeed, the scriptures teach that marriage is ordained of God for his children, and also that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. His way of everlasting marriage is filled with hope and promise and is designed to lead to happiness here and to an eternal stewardship like that of God himself. In the beginning, after the earth was prepared, God brought man and woman together in the garden, and the first wedding occurred. They were not yet subject to mortal death, and no time limitations were placed upon their marriage. God declared, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. When Christ lived on the earth, he quoted this commandment and added, What therefore God hath put together, joined together, let not man put asunder. He gave his disciples power to bind in heaven that which is bound on earth. 
Paul declared that neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. When the gospel was restored, there came a renewed understanding of temples and temple worship. The power to bind and seal on earth and in heaven has again been entrusted to authorized servants of God. Eternal marriage, marriage of highest promise, is again performed for time and for all eternity by qualified officiators in the holy temples of the Lord. But a marriage designed to last forever will be a good marriage, growing and gracious. Sometimes the distinctive elements of temple marriage are thought of as being exclusively duration and authority. Of course, everyone who comes to the temple to be married understands that it is by God's authority for time and eternity. But the remarkable revealed ceremony at the altar in a temple contemplates much more than this. The quality of the relationship thus established is of highest importance. Wonderful promises are sealed upon a man and woman in temple marriage, and the realization of the promised blessings is related directly to their understanding and keeping the solemn commitments they make to each other and the Lord. Those commitments in a temple are total and permanent, involving the whole person as is for the whole journey. Neither will remain as they are, of course. They'll grow and develop in a multitude of ways. But this marriage ceremony is without condition or reservation, save only the faithfulness of those who make it. On this solid foundation, the newly formed family joyfully undertakes to learn how to live happily forever, to build a strong and loving union that will grow more wholesome and more glorious everlastingly. How do we ensure success in such a vital and great undertaking? Many new and enduring relationships spring into bearing and into being with marriage, relationships all of which are vital in happiness and the family. For her, the words, the sacred words, are wife, mother, homemaker, heart of a home. For him, husband, father, protector, provider, leader in his home, in the warm spirit of the priesthood. Together they enter a partnership, sharing and learning and growing. They join their lives as companions in the special sense that married people do. Whether in the same room or a world apart, they're married 24 hours a day. They care about the whole person, the whole future of each other, with good humor and good disposition and genuine consideration of the needs of the other. They set out to make it a happy life. They laugh a lot and cry a little. They are warm and considerate and thoughtful. The note, the telephone call, the kind word, the sensitive response, the excitement of heading home to her, of having him come home. Married people are sweethearts in a special creative union, blessed with that powerful chemistry that draws two together sometimes from next door, sometimes from a world away. This divinely designed power must be sustained by other qualities, by respect and loyalty and integrity to be what it is meant to be. To be able to give oneself fully with confidence and trust and to fully receive the other joyfully and gratefully, this is a blessing that grows in meaning year by year and forever. 
In five sad words, a broken-hearted wife years ago summed up the disintegration of a marriage and the foolishness of believing that the physical union can stand alone is enough without kindness and consideration. She said, we have nothing left to express. And married people should be best friends. No relationship on earth needs friendship as much as marriage. I have in my possession a letter written by a young widowed immigrant in the early days of the Church. It was written in 1848 in Honey Creek, Missouri, to her husband's mother and sister in England. He had died on the sailing vessel en route, leaving her and the two boys to make their way west with the saints, heart sick and alone. She wrote the letter that changed my life a little. Maybe it will yours. She began, Dear Mother and Dear Hannah, your dearly beloved son and my best friend has gone the way of all the earth. Dearer to me in life than life itself, he's gone. Oh, Mother, Mother, what am I to do? And then she told of her love for this, her best friend, and that she would rear these two boys in the kingdom and in his image and in the admonition of the Lord. Friendship in marriage is so important. It blows away the chaff and takes the kernel, rejoices in the uniqueness of the other, listens patiently, gives generously, forgives freely. Friendship will motivate one to cross a room one day and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. It will not pretend perfection nor demand it. It will not insist that both respond exactly the same in every thought and feeling, but it will bring to the unit honesty, integrity. There will be repentance and forgiveness in every marriage, every good marriage, and respect and trust. And all these and other elements we are not able to mention eloquently declare that such a union doesn't just happen. So the need becomes clear for careful, thoughtful preparation, selection, and courtship. No one should be unwise enough to count on an across-the-crowded-room, romanticized, live-happily-ever-after marriage made without proper thoughtfulness, preparation, and prayer. Marriage is an everyday and everyway relationship in which honesty and character and shared convictions and objectives and views about finances and family and lifestyle are more important than moonlight and music and an attractive profile. The surest basis for all of this is to be worthily married in the temple. But temple marriage is not an isolated ordinance. It serves both as a culmination of other ordinances and the foundation for family and the eternal future. Perhaps some of you young men do not know that no one can enter into a temple marriage until he or she has been to the temple previously to receive their own blessings. Two who desire an eternal marriage cannot establish that relationship until each has personally made sacred covenants with the Lord. These covenants center in principles that are basic in a truly Christian life and in the foundation of a good marriage and family. You see, the covenants we make in the temple, like other sacred ordinances in the kingdom, relate us to and center in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the temple, we make commitments to follow him 
in doing God's will and keeping his commandments, in valuing others and unselfishly serving, in loving God and our fellow men. Sexual purity and complete fidelity to moral principle are promised with self-worth and self-control and whole-souled devotion to the cause of righteousness and truth. All of this happens through the priesthood, the holy priesthood, after the order of the Son of God. A thoughtful understanding of this should automatically eliminate any false perceptions of superiority or inferiority. Men and women are of equal value before God and must be equally valuable in the eyes of each other. A true devotion to following the example of the Son of God will never permit notions of domination or dictatorship or possession or control. It will never justify unrighteousness or abuse or filth, or discourtesy. Christ's way is the way of persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned. It is simple to see, isn't it, that the kind of marriage we're talking about just doesn't happen. The foundation is laid in the house of the Lord. The marriage is pronounced by authority of God. And then it is fashioned by two who are wholesome, prepared emotionally and practically, and who are honest. It requires being ready to go to the temple, being mature enough to make promises and keep them, and to receive holy promises and qualify for them. So wherever we are with respect to marriage, years from it, close to it, or deeply committed in it, we must be wise, be faithful to the commandments of God, be true. Marriage is the most close and intimate relationship one makes in this life and the most serious and sacred decision. If you haven't been to the Lord's house, get ready. Be clean. Prepare to come to establish the foundation for a special, happy, eternal marriage. And the inspiration for all of this is the sweet assurance, deeply rooted in the heart of every decent man who is living as he should with his sweetheart wife, or who has so lived or who is planning and preparing for such a union, that heaven will be heaven for us because we know we will be there with the one we love the best. Parley P. Pratt said after he met the prophet in Philadelphia that it was from him that I learned that the wife of my bosom might be secured to me for time and all eternity, and that the refined sympathies and affections which endeared us to each other, emanated from the foundation of divine eternal love. It was from the prophet I learned that we might cultivate these affections and grow and increase in the same to all eternity. We sat in a room the other night with our five children and their eternal partners and with their 16 children. Twenty-eight of us joined in a circle of affection and appreciation. That circle was established with two of us in a holy House of the Lord only a few short years ago. It's expanded miraculously. Our last child was born 24 years ago, but the circle continues to expand and grow. God being willing, we may live to see another generation of wonderful children entering the world. We're grateful to know that our family will relate with us eternally, even as we will, with those who gave us mortal life. 
and all of us together will find a loving place ultimately in a continuing relationship under the influence of him whose spirit children we are and of him whose holy sacrifice brought us the blessings of eternal life. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brethren, I am both honored and humbled about this appointment to speak with you tonight. I've often been asked, how do you stand the pressure of coaching and remain so calm? I can assure you, brethren, I feel real pressure standing before you this evening, especially with no more ability than I have as a speaker. But I would like to pose one or two question, points for your consideration, particularly you young brethren. First, will going on a full-time mission have an adverse effect on my future athletic career? When I started coaching at BYU in 1962, there was a prevailing attitude that missions and football did not mix. As a result, very few players went on missions and returned to play the game. The feeling being that a young man could not go into the field, preach love for two years, and still return with the desire to play a physical contact sport such as football. Many felt there would be a loss of coordination, specific techniques, and the strength and the condition necessary to perform at a high level of competency required for major college athletics. This attitude prevailed until our beloved prophet, President Kimball, proclaimed that every man of missionary age should prepare himself for a mission. As a result of this proclamation, many more of our athletes started going on missions. It has been our experience that if a young man decides to go on a mission, he can not only play well when he returns, he will often play better. If I could draw one general conclusion, it would be that if an athlete could play well before he went on a mission, he will definitely play well when he returns. And if an athlete could not play well before his mission, he probably won't play well when he returns. <laughs> However, <laughs> his chances are playing well are perhaps better if he goes because he will return with a greater understanding of himself, greater leadership capabilities, better work habits, and a better knowledge of what it takes to be successful. It really does depend on the young man's desire, commitment, work habits, and how important it is to him when he returns. This year alone, we have 52 return missionaries on our football team. I suspect that this is probably true in all facets of our life, brethren. Sean Covey, one of our fine young players, is now serving a mission in South Africa. He is an excellent young quarterback prospect who I'm sure you'll be hearing more about in future years. I have a neighbor, John Collins, who is a great friend of Sean's and is serving a mission in Scotland. John's mother related a story regarding Sean and John. And he, Sean recently had written a letter to John in Scotland and shared with him the importance of his mission. He told John in his letter, just think, 
This weekend, BYU will be opening the football season in Pittsburgh before 50,000 fans. If I were home, I would be there with the team, being a part of this very thrilling experience. Instead, I will be baptizing a lady and her daughter. I wouldn't trade this experience for anything in the world. I am proud of my two sons, John and Jim, along with my son-in-law, Ken Cannon, who is here with me this evening, for their decisions to go on a mission. All three served excellent missions and then returned to participate in college athletics. Or at least John and Jim did, John in track and Jim in football. In their, letter home, in their letters home and even now that they've been back for some time, they frequently mention that the experiences in the mission field were the choicest and the most gratifying of their lives. You young brethren, begin to prepare yourselves now for this marvelous experience. On to the second point. Into the field of athletics, we tend to look at successful athletes and make them almost bigger than life. It has been my experience as a teacher and a coach for over 30 years. I have seen many young men who have achieved greatness. I have also seen those who have come up a little short of their potential. I, know what the, I don't know what the answer is, but I, do know, but I do know that those who succeed have been able to do two things. One, they recognize within themselves the potential to do something well and then work hard to prepare themselves for that eventual opportunity. Others wait for the opportunity to come and then start to work, thus coming up a little short. Every year on the football team, there are players on our team who are bigger, stronger, and faster than those that are playing in their position. Why is this? I'm not sure, but after so many years of coaching, one overriding principle stands out. Potential does not always ensure success. In other words, the greatest players have not always been the most endowed. In athletics, we often hear the phrase, he has the will to win. I think this is wrong. We can be in a game, taking a test, giving a talk, or whatever the experience may be. We can have the greatest will to do well. But unless we have prepared, it is of little use. Really, it should be the will to prepare. Those who succeed have this will, whether it be in athletics, whether it be in their school, whether it be in their chosen vocation, whether it be on the mission, or almost in any other phase of their life. Those who have succeeded have also had the ability to overcome adversity, disappointment, and even tragedy in their lives. Since our quarterback position has such a high visibility and everyone seems to know about them, let me share two short stories with you. Steve Young is one of the most gifted young men that I have ever known. He is fast, strong, big, handsome, rich. Uh, <laughs> very rich. <laughs> It is easy for us to look at Steve and say, with all those attributes, he ought to be great. However, it is more than his physical attributes that have made him great. It's the way he thinks. When Steve was a junior and was starting his first season as our quarterback, we had one of the greatest opportunities presented to us in our football program at BYU. We were scheduled to play Herschel Walker in the University of Georgia. 
the defending national champions. We worked very hard and felt we had a chance to beat them if we played our very best and did not make mistakes. Before 82,000 fans and on a rainy day in Georgia, Steve threw five interceptions in the first half of the game, more than he would normally throw in five games. In spite of the interceptions and two missed field goal attempts, we were still tied 7-7 seven to seven at halftime. I thought to myself that I must talk to Steve and assure him that everything will be fine. The rain, the crowd, the tip balls, etc. had all excuses ready for throwing five interceptions in one half. I started to explain this to Steve, and before I could finish, Steve stopped, looked at me like I was crazy, and said, Hey, coach. He said, Hey, there's no problem. I can hardly wait to get back out there. We're going to win. I even found myself thinking to myself, What do you mean there's no problem, you dummy? You've just thrown five interceptions, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's the way he thinks. That is what has made him uh, what he has done and accomplished what he has. As you know, this was just the start of a career that would see him become one of the finest quarterbacks to play the game of college football. The second story happened this year with our present quarterback, Robbie Bosco. We were playing the University of Pittsburgh. They were preseason ranked third in the country. We were leading three to nothing in the third quarter and had a good drive going. Robbie threw a bad pass. It was intercepted and returned for a 70-yard touchdown. Pittsburgh led 7-3. They kicked off to us, and on our second play, Robbie threw an intercept, a pass that was ricocheted off the shoulder of one of our receivers. It was caught by a Pittsburgh defensive back and returned to our 15-yard line. Four plays later, Pittsburgh scored and went ahead 14-3. I thought to myself, this will be a good chance to see what Robbie is made of. Robbie came back, and with three or four minutes remaining in the game, in fact, the next possession of the ball, we drove on down and scored. And then with three or four minutes remaining in the game, Robbie moved our team the length of the field, throwing the winning touchdown to Adam Haysbert. Right then, I, was, I knew there was no question that Robbie was going to be a great quarterback. Now, brethren, how do we handle adversity? Adversity is going to be with us in everything that we do, almost in every facet of our lives, in our personal associations, in the mission field, in our chosen professions, in our families, in every aspect. When we have adversity, we oftentimes tend to look around and think that we're the Lone Ranger. We tend to believe that we're the only ones that have problems. And we always tend to look around and see others who are more talented, taller, smarter, handsomer, or faster. I can assure you, brethren, everyone has problems, even football coaches. The ability we have to handle this adversity will determine the degree of success that we will have in life. To me, this is where the gospel can be the greatest of help to us. The power of the Holy Ghost is the greatest source of strength and comfort we can have in our lives. The Holy Ghost will not only help us in times of need, but will help us to gain a firm testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, thereby preparing us for life. I have made progress over the past decades as a coach, but I feel that the progress that I have made as a coach as well as a person is a direct result of the growth that I have made through my Church callings. I had the opportunity to serve as a bishop on a campus ward. 
while I was still as an assistant coach. When I was appointed the head football coach in 1972, I decided to approach my role as a coach much the same as I did as a bishop. Delegating responsibility to my assistants, putting responsibility on the players for self-improvement in all aspects of their lives, using personal interviews with players and try to give positive reinforcement and encouragement so that they might do their very best and reach their full potential both on and off the field. Every position that I have held has brought invaluable experiences and growth to my life. Whatever position you are called to, brethren, whether it be bishop, priesthood quorum advisor, home teacher, or athletic director, you will have no greater thrill than when one of the young men in your stewardship makes the decision to accept a mission call. I would encourage you to double your efforts in this regard. It is well worth the time and the effort. Now, brethren, in my career, I've had many wonderful things happen to me, many more than I ever dreamed possible would ever happen. But I would like for you, young brethren, especially to know that all that has happened to me in my chosen profession is a mere drop in the bucket compared to the truly important things in my life. The testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have, along with my wife and my family, are my most important possessions, and this I bear to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every missionary is well acquainted with the oft-quoted passage from the book of Amos, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And every member of this church loves to sing that favorite hymn, We thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. What secrets has the Lord God revealed unto his servant, the prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball? Were he here this evening, what advice and counsel would he provide you and me to guide us in these latter days? Would we listen? Would we obey? Would we be doers of the word and not hearers only, thereby deceiving our own selves? Some time ago, President Kimball met with all of us general authorities on the upper floor of the temple. He stood and spoke to us and declared, Brethren, for some time I have been worried and concerned over the fact that we do not have sufficient numbers of missionaries to carry the message of the Restoration effectively to all of the peoples of the world. He continued, I have been in the presence of some mothers and fathers who have said, We're encouraging our boy John to make a decision to serve a mission, but the decision is his. We hope he goes. Brother Kimball continued, I've seen and heard some young men speaking together, and they have said, we're attempting to make up our minds whether we would like to serve a mission. President Kimball stood on his tiptoes that day and raised his voice an octave, as he's prone to do when he wants to make a point with emphasis. And he declared, Brethren, it doesn't really matter whether mother and father think that it would be a nice idea for John to go on a mission. It doesn't really matter whether Dick and Tom and Pete want to go or not. They simply must go, 
And then he emphasized our responsibility to repay the missionary system, where missionaries of an earlier day left home and family and served and sacrificed that our parents and our grandparents might hear the glorious message of truth. I love to read my own grandfather's missionary journal. The first two entries are classics. The first one reads, Today is the happiest day of my life. My sweetheart and I went to the Salt Lake Temple and were married for time and for all eternity. The very next night, he wrote in his journal, I think with a little more uh, poignancy, Tonight the bishop called at our house, and I have been asked to return to Scandinavia for a two-year mission. Of course I'll go, and my sweet wife will remain at home and sustain me. I'm grateful for that kind of missionary heritage. We of the Council of the Twelve have the opportunity occasionally to hear President Benson relate the missionary experience of his family, how his father was called to leave home on a two-year mission and leave behind his wife, seven children, with the eighth on the way the home, the farm, everything dear to him. Did he lose anything? Brother Benson indicates how his mother would call the boys and girls of an evening to surround the kitchen table, and there, by the flickering flame of an oil-fueled lamp, she would read to the children the missionary letter from their father. Once in a while she'd pause to wipe away a tear. What was the result? Every one of those children filled a full-time mission. As you and I respond to President Kimball's clarion call to missionary service, I would suggest that we could profitably examine the Aaronic Priesthood pathway, which provides the instruction, quickens the desire, and leads the lad who walks along it not only to a full-time mission but to marriage in the temple and at journey's end, exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God. It's essential, critical, that we examine this Aaronic priesthood pathway because far too many boys today falter, stumble, and fall and fail to cross that finish line into the Melchizedek priesthood quorums. In fact, today for the first time in the history of the Church, the number of prospective elders is greater than the number of holders of the Melchizedek priesthood, thereby eroding our active priesthood base and placing lovely women in a position of inactivity as wives of these brethren, and likewise frustrating the desire of children of promise. What should we do? How can we save every boy? I would suggest that we initially Look at the headwaters of the Aaronic Priesthood stream. There is an old Chinese proverb which purports to determine the sanity of an individual. A person is shown a stream flowing into a stagnant pond. That individual is handed a bucket and asked to drain the pond. If the person first diverts the inflow of the stream, that individual is judged as sane. If, however, he disregards that inflowing stream and begins to drain the pond bucket by bucket. He is judged insane. 
I testify, brethren, that if we want to meet the challenge of the growing numbers of prospective elders in this Church, we need to redouble our efforts with the Aaronic Priesthood of the Church. Bishops, you are the presidents of the Aaronic Priesthood in your wards and president of the Quorums of Priests. You cannot delegate these God-given assignments. Oh, you may share the responsibility with your counselors and should, and you, brethren, may choose wonderful men, faithful men, boys' men, to be Aaronic Priesthood Quorum Advisors, models worthy to follow. Were I a bishop again tonight, I would turn to my second counselor and say, Brother Balmforth, your chief responsibility in the bishopric of this ward is to look after the deacons, to ensure that when each boy arrives at the age of 14, he is worthy and is ordained a teacher. I would turn to my first counselor and say, Brother Hemingway, your assignment is to work with the boys who are in the teacher's quorum, to ensure that when each one arrives at the age of 16, he is worthy and is ordained a priest. And as the bishop, I will take the responsibility to work with those who are priests to ensure that when they are in their nineteenth year, they are worthy, prepared, ordained elders, and called to fill full-time missions. By saving every boy, brethren, we provide a worthy husband for each one of our worthy young women. We strengthen the ranks of the Melchizedek priesthood, and we provide a missionary force capable to meet the expectations of the Lord and our beloved prophet and president, Spencer W. Kimball. Where might we first start in our objective? I would like to suggest that every deacon in this Church be given a spiritual awareness of the sacredness of his ordained calling. This occurred in my life when I was a deacon, when the bishopric invited me to take the sacrament to an elderly shut-in who lived about a mile from the chapel. That Sunday morning, as I knocked on the home of Edward Wright and heard a feeble, Come in, I entered not only a humble home, I entered a room filled with the Spirit of the Lord. I approached Brother Wright and told him at his bedside that I had been assigned to bring him the sacrament. I then took a little piece of the bread and put it to his lips that he might eat. Then I cradled his head in my left hand, lifted him a little bit, and took a little cup of water and put it to his lips that he might drink. As I prepared to leave him, he embraced me and said, Thank you, and God bless you, my boy. And God has blessed me with an appreciation of the emblems that remains with me even tonight. May I suggest that every ordained teacher be given the assignment to be a home teacher? What better preparation could he possibly have for missionary work than this? It is an introduction to the discipline of duty, and a boy doesn't find it difficult to shed undue interest in himself when he is assigned to watch over others. And what of the priests, these young men who have the assignment to baptize? to bless the sacrament. Oh, I remember when I was a deacon, we would marvel and admire the work of the priests of the ward. We had one priest in the ward by the name of Barry. Oh, he was quite an individual. 
he would read the sacrament prayer as though he were participating in a speech contest. The elderly people of the ward would say, Oh, Barry, we love to hear you bless the sacrament. You are so clear in your speaking voice. I think he became a little proud. Then we had a priest by the name of Jack who had a hearing impediment, and that gave him a difficult time speaking, and his speech was rather mechanical. We deacons would twitter when he would bless the sacrament. How we dared do so, I'll never understand. He was tall, and he was broad, and he had a hand like a bear. He could have crushed any one of us deacons, but he never said a negative word. One day, Barry with a golden voice and Jack with a difficult delivery were teamed side by side at the sacrament table. The sacrament hymn was sung. The bread was broken. We lowered our heads. We closed our eyes. Barry, with a golden voice, knelt down on the little stool to bless the bread, and nothing happened. After what seemed like an eternity, I lifted my head and opened my eyes and beheld a scene I shall never forget. Here was Barry, frantically searching the top of the sacrament table, looking in vain for the little white card on which would appear the blessing on the bread and the blessing on the water. It was nowhere to be found. Barry was pink in the face, and then more people began to look at him, and he turned crimson. What to do? And then I saw Jack with that great big bear-like hand simply take hold of Barry's shoulder and sit him down. And then he knelt down on the little stool and he declared, O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it. And he continued the prayer. We passed the bread. He blessed the water. We passed the water. We deacons gained a new appreciation for Jack that day, who, though he were limited in his speaking, he so loved his duty as a priest that he took the time to commit to memory those sacrament prayers. Barry, too, gained a new appreciation for Jack. <laughs> they became fast friends. Beyond the influence of the bishoprics and beyond the influence of the Aaronic Priesthood Quorum Advisors is the influence of the home as pertains to the boy who travels the Aaronic Priesthood pathway. The wise and carefully administered help of mother and father can make the difference between success and failure. Our recent studies show that the home, more than any other factor, is the chief determinant in determining whether a young man fills a mission and whether he marries in the temple. And let's not overlook you young men who are presidencies of Aaronic priesthood quorums. The Lord has been crystal clear in your instruction. He said, Verily I say unto you, the duty of the president of the office of a deacon is to preside over twelve deacons to sit in council with them and to teach them their duty, edifying one another as it has been given according to the covenants. And likewise, the similar instruction to the president of the teacher's quorum and to the president of the priest's quorum. 
And may I ask you stake presidents tonight, are you utilizing effectively your stake ironic priesthood committee? Do these brethren visit on an orderly rotation basis the ironic priesthood quorums in every ward in every stake? Does each one have a list by name and talent and background of every deacon and every teacher and every priest in the stake? Generalities simply will not do, for when we deal in generalities, we will rarely have a success. But if we deal in specifics, we will rarely have a failure. It can be done, brethren, and must be done. As I look on this stand and see my associate, Joseph B. Wirthlin, I remember that when he was a bishop, he presided over a quorum of 45 priests. All 45 were ordained elders. All 45 filled full-time missions. The late Alvin R. Dyer, a member of the first quorum of the 70, he presided over a quorum of 48 priests, 46 of whom filled full-time missions, 47 of whom married in the temple. Brethren, we must save every boy. When I was a bishop, I recall one Sunday morning that one of our priests was missing, Richard. I left the quorum in the able care of our quorum advisor and visited Richard's home to determine where he was. His mother said that he was working at the West Temple garage. I drove over there. The station was open, but Richard was not to be found, not in the office, not in the restrooms, not around the pumps. I was about to leave, and then the inspiration came to me to look in the old grease pit out behind the station, the kind that's below the surface of the ground. A car was resting on the runners. I stooped down and looked into the depths of that pit. I saw two beady eyes staring back at me. And then I heard Richard say, I'm coming up, Bishop. And he came up, and he came out, and he never missed a priesthood meeting in our ward. Later his family moved. But how thrilled I was about a year from that time when Bishop Arthur Spencer of the Wells Stake telephoned me and advised that Richard had been called on a mission to Mexico, and would I come and speak at his farewell testimonial. Can you appreciate my joy when Richard stood to respond and said that his decision to serve a mission came on Sunday morning, not at the chapel, but when he was in the depths of a grease pit, and he looked up and saw silhouetted against the blue sky the outstretched hand of his quorum president. I was humbled. It was John Barry, the Scottish poet, who said, God gave us memories that we might have June roses in the December of our lives. It has been my experience, brethren, that some of the most fragrant and beautiful roses bloom in profusion along the ironic priesthood pathway. On that pathway are feet to strengthen hands to grasp, minds to instruct, hearts to inspire, and souls to save. Tonight, I invite all of you men to join with me, together with all of the ironic priesthood of this Church, as we walk shoulder to shoulder 
along the priesthood pathway, which leads onward and upward to perfection. For this I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. I deeply appreciate the opportunity tonight to address the young men of the Aaronic Priesthood and their leaders. I have a sincere desire to cause each one to enlarge his vision of what the Aaronic Priesthood means and what a great blessing it is to be entrusted with its power. I think it is very important to recognize that the Lord has entrusted each individual with the responsibility associated with the Aaronic Priesthood. In other words, when I speak of the Aaronic Priesthood, I speak as it is as it affects each individual, not just a large number of boys or men. When one receives the Aaronic Priesthood, he receives it as a personal, private ordination, not just as one of many. Therefore, I hope you will feel that what I have to say tonight should be taken as a personal message to the deacon in the upper row of the balcony here in, Salt, in the Salt Lake Tabernacle, to the teacher watching the satellite transmission in New Jersey, and the young priest hearing the broadcast in France or Samoa or Brazil, to each individual young man. This summer we all witnessed one of the most wonderful and inspiring exhibition of youth, youthful accomplishment among the athletes that can be imagined. People all over the world were lifted to new heights of faith in mankind through the performance of the men and women at the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Their self-confidence and commitment to excel were infectious. I, for one, have unrestrained admiration for all of them, not only those who received medals, but all of the participants, and, of course, the thousands of volunteers who made that great event possible deserve to be recognized as well. I would like to draw some parallels between the experiences of these young people and the experiences which are far greater and longer-lasting than most of you have in your life's contest. I specifically speak to the deacon, the teacher, and priest who have had conferred upon them the power and the authority of the Aaronic Priesthood. Each participant in the Olympics needed to train thoroughly to even qualify to participate. It took many, many hours of practice, of developing self-discipline, of de developing further commitment to achieve the goal. It required sacrifice, and it required a feeling of self-confidence. You, as an Aaronic priesthood holder, have qualified to receive that priesthood. Had you not qualified, it would not have been given to you, and you would not be authorized to participate and exercise its powers and authority. You did not have to spend the hours the athletes had to spend to condition and perfect your physical body, but you had to do something more important than that. It was necessary for you to prepare your spirit to receive the blessings of this great honor. Now that you have accepted, been accepted, if you expect to succeed, it is essential that you do the things that will bring about success. When you do succeed, which requires not just months but a lifetime of living and proving yourself, you may not receive the applause of men. You will not be performing before large audiences of enthusiastic supporters, but you will have performed many of the necessary labors in, the, in private and without expectation of recognition. And that, of course, requires greater self-discipline 
than just about any other human endeavor. In striving to do their best, these young athletes often looked for inspiration and motivation to those who had performed in prior games, establishing Olympic records. They worked to perfect their talents in order to equal or better those records. You, as an Aaronic priesthood holder, have available many examples of those who have honored their priesthood. Aaron, John the Baptist, Joseph Smith, your own father and your bishop. You need only to strive to be, to be and do your best to follow these examples. Most of the per- per- participants in the Olympic Games recognize that in athletics as well as in life, the real competition is with self, not against others. I watched a television interview one day where this was made very clear. The 14-year-old figure skating champion of Canada was asked how she felt when she performed to her very best and won. She responded, wonderful. How do you feel when you perform your very best and lose? Wonderful. How do you feel when you don't perform your very best and win? Terrible. As an Iraq priesthood holder, your contest is with yourself as you honor your priesthood. The priesthood you hold was restored to the earth on May 15, 1829, by a heavenly messenger, John the Baptist, the same John who, with the authority of the Aaronic priesthood, baptized Jesus of Nazareth in the River Jordan, and later, as a resurrected being, laid his hands on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and said, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of the Messiah, of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. John the Baptist said he came at the direction of Peter, James, and John. The ordination was performed before the Church was restored again to the earth. The Aaronic priesthood is a preparatory priesthood. It is an appendage to the Melchizedek priesthood and has to do largely with outward ordinances and temporal responsibilities. However, in the ordination, John the Baptist said that it holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. These are essential for admittance into the Church of Jesus Christ and to achieve the goal of exaltation in the kingdom of God. I feel sometimes we consider the preparation and handling of the sacrament and the collection of fast offerings and so forth as almost the sum and substance of the Aaronic priesthood responsibility. This is not true. These activities, of course, are very important, but there is so much more. As a preparatory priesthood, it is preparing you to ultimately, of course, for eternal life and exaltation. The Lord said, This is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And further, he has, he has told us that eternal life and exaltation is the greatest gift of God to man. As a holder of the priesthood, you are a servant of our Heavenly Father. If you are to honor the priesthood, you must truly be a servant and also serve your fellow men. If you make this service a part of your life, You won't have to continually make decisions about what is right and what is wrong. It will become second nature to your way of living, because through service you will be drawing closer to your Heavenly Father. I am very much aware that you and some of your peers are living that way now. 
For instance, a 15-year-old Korean boy took his weekly allowance and bought newspapers with it. Then he and some friends sold them on the streets of Seoul, Korea, to raise money to help a fellow student who did not have sufficient funds to stay in school. This young man also gave part of his lunch to this boy each day so that he would not go hungry. Why did he do these things? Because he had been studying the story of the Good Samaritan and didn't just want to learn about the Good Samaritan but wanted to know how, what it felt like to be one by doing what a Good Samaritan would do. He related these things to his father only after question, careful questioning by his father about his activities. He had done them without any thought of recognition. I doubt very much that the bishop of this young man would have to worry about how he looked when he came to participate in the sacrament at the sacrament table or whether his heart and hands were clean and pure. I don't think his father would have to worry about whether or not he was honest in his relationships with others or whether or not he cheated at school. Another father told me of an experience he'd had with his son who was a priest. This man needed some help about the ho- around the house with cleaning and repainting and so forth. Pleasantly and cooperatively, this young man went ahead and accomplished much of the work. He is preparing himself for trust and responsibility by honoring his parents and willingly accept cho- accepting chores at home. He's beginning to understand the whole armor of God, which will assure peace and happiness in this life and in the life to come. He's developing the strength and self-discipline needed to obey all of the commandments. In another instance, some of the young men and women in one ward found themselves wavering in their testimonies and uncomfortable with church activity. One day they decided, under the guidance of a very wise bishop, to involve themselves actively with several of the elderly members of the ward who were homebound. They divided into small groups, with each group determined to develop a family-like relationship with one of the homebound members. On a regular basis, the young women and young men prepared meals that they and their elderly friends enjoyed together in the homes of the elderly member. Each Sunday, the young men took the sacrament into the homes. On occasion, they arranged to hold special family home evenings together. These activities caused them a remarkable change in the attitude of the young people toward themselves, toward the elderly, and toward the Church. They found a way to express the gospel of of Christ through giving loving service. I don't think any of us will ever forget the sight of hundreds of young athletes marching proudly behind the flags and banners of their respective countries, thrilled to have been chosen to represent their nation at the Olympic Games. You, my brother of the Aaronic Priesthood, seated in the balcony here at a stake center in New Jersey or in a chapel in France, Samoa, or Brazil, you are a chosen representative of God, having received the authority to act in His name, as has every worthy young man who holds the priesthood. The banner you carry every day may not be seen by millions of people, but it is seen by Him whose banner it is and by those who know who you are both members of the Church and non-members. It is the banner of the Lord displaying what you really are deep down inside as you show your love of God by keeping His commandments and by serving your fellow men. It is my firm prayer that each of you bishops of these young men and quorum advisors will age in understanding what it is 
to means to ho- to hold the holy priesthood and to put on the whole armor of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.